Jan Martel is the author of Life of Pi, the number one international bestseller and winner of the 2002 Man Booker, among other prizes. He is also the award-winning author of The Facts Behind the Helsinki Locomotivos, Self, Beatrice and Virgil, and 101 Letters to a Prime Minister. Born in Spain in 1963, Martel studied philosophy at Trent University, worked at odd jobs like tree planter, dishwasher, and security guard, and traveled widely before turning to writing. You talk about the different places that you've lived and how that, um, how that fed into your writing, how they influenced you. Uh, yeah, I bumped around a fair bit. Um, well, I was born in Salamanca in Spain because my father was doing a, a PhD there. He was doing a doctorate on uh, Miguel de Unamuno, mm. who was one of the great Spanish writers of a certain generation, and um, he was from Salamanca, and so my father had a, got a bursary to study there. So he went with my mother, who was also studying. And so I was born in Salamanca, but we moved out, I think I was under a month, and oh. we went to Coimbra in Portugal, uh, where my father spent a summer there. And then we went to Alaska. We moved to Alaska, where my father taught at the University of Alaska. This was in the 60s and 70s, when university jobs were still quite easy to come by. And so my father had a choice between teaching at the University of Alaska in Fairbanks and UCLA, uh, sorry, the University, University of California. Yeah, I think it was at Berkeley. And um, this is 1963. It would have been a great time to be at Berkeley. Yeah. But he chose the University of Alaska. So we were there for a couple of years, and then we moved to University of Victoria, where he taught there. And then he and eventually my mother joined the Foreign Service. So we moved from Victoria to Ottawa, and then we started uh, moving abroad. So, so first of all, they were posted to Costa Rica, to San Jose, and then straight from there they had a posting in Paris. And then that was the first time I lived with them, and then they, in Paris, and then they um, back in Ottawa and they went to Spain and I went to a boarding school but I joined them every um, summer in Spain and then later on they got another posting in France and that's where I I joined them I was supposed to be there only a few weeks on my way to uh, traveling I was going to settle in a kibbutz in Israel I remember oh. thought that would be a good place where I could work with my hands during the day and find time to write the idea was to find a place where I could spend time writing and I saw my parents apartment in Paris and I said oh I'll stay a little bit longer I ended up staying four years and um working part-time, part of that time, and then started writing. And then I just continued traveling on my own, which is why I ended up in India at one point, and I also spent time in Iran, and I traveled through Europe. Uh, to me, the world is like a book. It's a, it's a fascinating to read, so I, I, you know, each country is like a chapter, and so I've had the luck of reading a fair number of chapters. That's a beautiful way of thinking of the world. Uh, it's and it's interesting too because you know a number of our uh, not not all of our uh, writers I've interviewed, but a number of them have this kind of experience of being uprooted. And they said to me maybe they turn to literature uh, as is a constant in their life. You know, um, is I mean what was what turned you on to literature? Besides, I know that your you, both your parents are actively interested in and in, in writers too. I believe writers and translators. Yeah, my father's a poet. He won the mm -hmm. general's award which is the highest literary um, Well, I became, I was turned on to literature, first of all, just by modeling myself off my parents. They're, my father's a writer, both my parents are readers, so you tend, I think, as children to, to somehow 
imitate what your parents do. You either directly oppose it or you, you imitate it. So I saw them read, so I, I started reading. Also, the traveling nurse that, too, in that uh, now less so with Amazon and sort of a certain cosmopolitanism, but in the 60s and 70s, literature literatures tended to be more national. There wasn't necessarily as much translation as there is now. So also, moving around meant I was introduced to uh, different literatures. I remember that, especially in Paris. Um, you know, the French translate different kinds of books than uh, the Canadians would or the Americans. Um, so I remember, for example, reading Iranian, contemporary Iranian literature um, while I was there, just books that happened to strike a chord in France that would have struck no chord anywhere else. Um, so that turned me on to literature, too, just discovering different kinds of books. And just as there are different ways of being, in different countries, there's also different ways of writing. There are different. Uh, now, it's, that comes down to individuals, but um, they still are seen to represent their country somehow. Um, so there was that, and then also, um, you're right, being displaced. Mind you, I did it in a fairly posh way. My parents were diplomats, um, which means there's still the jar of uh, switching schools, switching school systems, losing all your friends, having to create new friends. It's still quite harsh. Um, um, but what that, what I think that did is, uh, I think um, art um, often comes out of a sense of discomfort uh, with the way things are. You're not comfortable with the way things are, and therefore you create something to deal with it. Art is a reaction to discomfort. Um, that's not always the case, but I suspect that someone who's completely happy will have less of a tendency to be a creator than someone who is somewhat uncomfortable with the world. So moving around, uh, changing schools, um, I guess maybe that is what uh, pushed me. But I remember I, I started writing, in my mind consciously, the reason I started writing uh, was because I needed to pass the time. I was in my 20s. I was living in, Mont in France, in Paris, uh, with my parents, uh, off my parents. And I was sort of waiting for my life to start. and. Um, I finished a BA in philosophy, which I love studying, but it didn't offer obvious uh, career prospects. Mm. So I was waiting for, you know, an urge to become a dentist to express itself in me. And while that urge was building up somehow, I thought, well, what am I going to do here? Why don't I start writing stories? And uh, I just did that sort of past the time. There was no, I wasn't at all careerist. Um, the way younger writers maybe are more nowadays because they take creative writing and they think they can uh, make a career of it. I just literally used to pass the time. And then uh, uh, one of my stories was submitted to a literary review here in Canada called That Review, which is a very good literary magazine published by the University of Victoria. And, you know, to my surprise, I didn't even know he'd submitted it. To my surprise, the story was accepted and I was paid. I can't remember how much, like $135. But considering it was $135 for something I'd done for nothing, mm -hmm. I was astonished. And so I said, oh, maybe I'll keep on writing more stories for to pass the time. And I submitted more stories to more magazines, and most were rejected, but a couple were accepted. And that started me going. Um, so what, what I did just to pass the time eventually became uh, what I did. Those stories eventually were published as a collection. And I said, oh, why not try something bigger? I'll try a novel. And that first one sold uh, very little in Canada, but it was published in itself. Yeah, it was published in seven countries. It didn't make any impact in any of those countries. But still, it was published in France. It was published in, in Germany. It was published in England. It was published, uh, where else? 
a few places, and then I said, oh, I'll try another novel, and then it was Life of Pi. So, so, um, so I, I sort of started writing without... I've always had that sense of joy in writing, and it's one that it, I try to keep un, um, unreflected in the sense that... I think one of the, I mean, there's many... I, 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 rant against creative writing here but there's something there's a danger in becoming too Mm self-conscious if you study something too much if your your approach becomes academic there's a danger of losing that joyful spontaneity that determines our style that determines what we write about you know i write about things just because you know there's no it's just who i am so i become interested in this and i'll go and even uh, i find um one of the reasons i also became a writer by the way was precisely because of a sort of isolation that allowed me to be unselfconscious. So I started writing in English in Paris. Yeah. Um, so I did something in complete isolation. Because I was in complete isolation, it, it, it just became what it was because there was nothing to influence it. Obviously, all the books that I'd read but don't talk. You interpret books how you want to. You misinterpret them how you want to. There's no human being, living human being, to influence me. And I sometimes worry with creative writing that you're getting people in their you know, late teens, early 20s, um, who are right away being made extremely self-conscious. And it can certainly improve their technique, but I wonder in terms of their native creativity, if that isn't, um, if you have a thousand voices uh, criticizing what you're doing, even if it's constructive criticism, or whatever doesn't uh, stop you. So it, in my uh, writing, uh, it's always been rooted on that sort of the joy of creation. So right now I'm working on a book set during the Trojan War. Oh. Um, and so I'm doing all kinds of research, you know, mm-hmm. reading Homer, obviously, but reading also about the epic cycle. I went to Troy a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. I've been to Turkey before, but I've never been to Troy because it's such an un- unimpressive site, but I decided to go there just to sort of see the landscape. Uh, and all that research, like right now I'm reading, I'm researching ancient warfare, how exactly did the Mycenaeans fight? Homer got a lot of uh, things wrong because they're anachronisms. He was, uh, a lot of the armaments are from the 8th century rather than the 12th century. Um, so all that research I find just really interesting. And it's nourishing my story, and it's developing from point of joy to point of joy. Mm. And uh, and you know, maybe a lot of writers do that, but and I had the luck that my points of joy have readers' points of joy. Um, and so yeah, I think that degree of sort of blindness is necessary for all writers. Yeah. But I've sort of cultivated slightly, of, even where I live now in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, which actually is a very literary province. A lot of writers come from here, but it's it's not you know it's not Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, so how, uh, yeah, I thought it's a very interesting base, your uh, philosophical base that you could have. I mean, it's it's deeply concerned with language, but enough that you don't have to apply. You weren't um, pressurized to be academic about your joy. No, no. I, I don't find that, um, listen, there's, I've been reading academic texts in my research, and I really yeah. appreciate them, mm-hmm. but... I, I, I don't know too many writers who have PhDs. Mm. There's great strength in having a PhD, obviously. They're you know, extremely intelligent. But that kind of <clears throat> logical um, intelligence isn't necessarily the only kind of intelligence you need to be a writer. So most writers I know, uh, you know, uh, you know might have masters, mm. uh, but no more than that. It's just a different kind of intelligence that you cultivate, I think, when you're a writer mm. than when you're an academic. Now, they kind of feed each other, obviously. I mean, both are rooted in the word, but the approaches are quite different. So I, I, I often go to the university library here in, in Saskatoon at the University of Saskatchewan to get books out. Um, uh, 
so I, I you know, I, I feed off it, and academia obviously feeds off uh, creativity too, of course, not only English departments, but other departments feed off uh, creativity. Um, but you don't want to mistake the two. You don't want to mistake, you, you, I don't think you can, you can study academically creativity to then yourself use it as a tool to be creative. I think there are, there are limits to, to that. But, you know, that's my opinion. Other people, you know, might have PhDs and feel they're, they're totally creative. So it's just my particular path has been more to rely on books. And I said that's that spontaneous joy in getting things on the page. Sure. And I love how you bring across uh, maybe your background in philosophy or interests in history and all these things. For me, I mean, I come at things from an artistic point of view. So I, I prefer to rather, well, books of philosophy are interesting, but I feel that I really understand it when it's subtly embedded in, in novels like yours, because it's just, I don't know, I can feel it. it's tangible for me. I agree. I, I think what's um, what's great about literature is that it's lifelike. It's a full it's a full person experience. A book, whereas you know, science is invaluable to our lives, but it addresses one aspect of us, the rational aspect. Um, you know, uh, same thing with economics. It looks at the the, the rational aspects of, of our commercial economic lives. Uh, uh, what's nice about a novel is that it's sort of it's a whole experience. It's both has rational elements. You cannot have an all. I mean, even the fundamentals of language require logic. You know, grammar has a certain logic. Spelling. Um, you know, th- th- there are some things that uh, are, are logical and rule based, and uh, others that aren't. And so there's something that. It, what's not great about art, and that's just literature, visual arts, music, it's kind of a whole person experience. It calls upon your rationality, but also your emotions. So a, a great work of art, I think that's why they're so striking, because they, it's sort of life itself being reflected at us. You read that in the great, you know, the great novels, you know, the great Russian novels. Uh, they're breathtaking, because you, you, you sort of, you feel like a, a god who's glimpsing at a planet. You, you, you see all existence expressed. So it's incredibly powerful. That's why it's so intoxicating to, to try to do that. Is uh, you become like a small god constructing a planet. You're constructing Eden. You're constructing a world. Um, it's it's really thrilling. And that's the same thing I think with all kinds of creativities too. When you're cooking a cake, there's an element of creativity there. From various disparate elements, you you create something, a cake. Um, there's something there's joy in that. But it, I think at its best, it's expressed in 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 in, in art. Because really, to contradict Lear, you are making something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a joy to, to do that, and it's a joy to receive that. I like this line from um, Beatrice and Virgil, just as music is noise that makes sense, a painting is color that makes sense, so a, li- a story is life that makes sense. I like to move that around a moment. Uh, because I didn't think about our lives not making sense, but... Uh, in, in a way, we well, you know, need you, fictions to understand our lives. Yeah, because, you know, it, it, fiction is a selection of reality. Um, you know, to take a very obvious example, in, it's very rare in novels that you'll have the repeated mention of the character brushing his or her teeth in the morning and mm-hmm. flossing once in the evening. You'll rarely have mentions of how many times a day they go to the bathroom. You know, those sort of trivial things are taken out. Mm-hmm. You only go to the essential. But also, fiction is 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 a, is is a me is a, an existence that has meaning. The meaning is extracted out of us. I think there's a lot of elements in our life that are quite random. Uh, I mean, for example, accidents. When people have accidents, other than that, you know, life can be 
um, taken away from you. Other than, that, other than that single lesson, when an accident, when a terrible car accident kills someone, to them, it comes out of the blue. There's no meaning to it. And that's the difficulty of dealing, in fact, with normal life, is tragedies suddenly come in and there's no meaning. Um, it feels meaningless. You know, if, you're, if my daughter were killed today, crossing from her school and was hit by a car and was killed, I would not be able to see meaning in that. When you read about it in a novel, in fact, since we're talking about that, you know, my novel, um, The High Mountains of Portugal, I, I start with the premise of three people suffering. Each one has lost someone. Each In the three parts of the, the High Mountains of Portugal, the character has lost someone very close to them. Uh, the suffering is a starting point, because then I want to see what do we do with how do we make sense out of tragedy? Normally in life, unless to happen to be religious, which is the sort of the only way that truly makes sense of suffering, and I say this regardless of what people think of religion, what's one interesting feature of religion is that it, it has the capacity to absorb suffering and make sense of it. You know, your daughter was killed because God wanted her, and she's now with God, and that's the way things are, and you don't understand that because you have a very limited view of the picture. If you could see the whole picture, you would see that suffering makes sense. Now, to a rational, secular person, that is nonsense. But for the religious person, it makes sense of suffering. In the secular world, we tend to avoid suffering because we, we can't make sense of it. We trust that doctors will keep us alive till we're 103, and then we're kind of willing to let go. Um, but any suffering that comes before that just shatters our sense of who we are. It just doesn't make sense. In art, suffering tends to make sense. Um, unless you're an absurdist from the 60s, in which case the absurdity of it all is the point you make. But even that, you're making it in a sense so that the reader learns from it and can somehow cope with that absurdity. So there's, I think there's something inherently meaningful in art, um, and which isn't necessarily the case in life. I think there's a lot of, of people who slightly drift through life, um, not quite understanding what anything is about, and they sort of patch together things, and if they're lucky, nothing terrible happens to them, and um, they're not too insightful that they need concrete meaning, and they just sort of, you know, they go from, they, they assemble together some sort of career, they assemble together some kind of family, and they just putter along, um, and that's fine, so long as they're lucky and they're not uh, swept away by some tragedy, um, but as I said, so I think meaning in life is um, not necessarily inherent to it, you have to construct it. And art definitely tries to construct that. It's interesting. I give you these really long answers. Oh Sorry. no, I love your answers because I don't. I mean, I have questions, but you're answering them before. So um, it's interesting that dialogue you your books have between uh, real, what's real, and and what's truthful. Um, and even going back to self, you know, it seems like there's this type of what, what is the outer shell and what is the real emotional truth or what the selves we have within us. Um, I, I like this. It's it's not like a like a mind game, but it, it really makes us, it really, as I read your books, makes us, me question the exterior. You, well, yeah, I think so. I guess that comes from having studied philosophy, which probably comes from a natural bent of trying to inquire into the into the nature of things and the truth of things but i i think that's what art is very good at is uh, I examining what is out there now because we come from very uh, the west we're now very rational um we're, we tend to be more literal so and you sometimes as a writer meet these sort of hard-headed kinds of people people who don't read yeah. people who think they're just commonsensical 
it's very disempowering for the writer because, in a sense, they, they think they understand life because they, they have eyeballs and they're looking at reality and they think that's it. What I see is what there is. What you see is what you get, which is just simply not the case. We're not just built up of empirical facts that come through our senses. Um, you know, you, someone who's like that, you say, well, what about sleep? You know, what happened during sleep? Eight hours of your life have gone by. Your senses were disconnected. What, do you think the world disappeared? You know, I, I think with, with artistic inquiry, we can start seeing beyond the surface of things. Because um, that surface is, you know, you're, each one is, is transitory. We're only here for a few minutes, and then we're gone. And you have those few minutes to try to make sense of things, uh, to try to understand them and, and see what it's all about. And that's a, going back to this idea of writing being joyful, to me that should be a joyful inquiry. It's, it's the few minutes we have are extraordinary. What our sense impressions bring to us are extraordinary, and what it can all mean is, once again, extraordinary. So um, uh, I found uh, art to be both a joyful and a deep way of probing into the reality of things, and often you have to go beyond the surface of things, which is why, despite I come from a completely secular background, I, my parents threw out the gods a long before I was born. They, they couldn't stand religion. Like people of that generation, my parents are in their 70s now in Quebec, uh, is, a, is a fiercely anti, uh, secular province and anti-religious. My parents replaced religion with art, um, but I, in my in my thirties, I became interested in religion uh, simply because I saw it as a mechanism that imaginatively deals with reality in much the same way that art does. The artist takes reality and constructs something different that nonetheless reflects reality. So you know, Picasso does paintings that like you know, no one looks like that, but. It's his take on reality, and you look at that, and you see reality different afterwards. Um, so it's imaginative processing of life. Religion does the same thing. It takes these myths, whether it's Jesus or Buddha or Allah, it doesn't matter. It takes them, and then you start seeing life through that lens, which is exactly the same kind of process the artist does. So I suddenly saw a correlation between um, religious thinking and artistic thinking. Now, their purposes are very different, um, but there's something about that imaginative translation of reality. Um, which I find not only joyful, but you get at truths. You get at truths that, that calm the stormy waters, too. If you have an understanding of life, you can understand better things that come at you. It's interesting, and then going back to that, is because you mentioned dreams, because it feels like art and religion is a way of dreaming with our eyes open and examining it, whereas we forget, often we forget our dreams, and it, it's just it's fascinating to be able to hold a dream still, in a way. Exactly. No, exactly. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, dreaming with your eyes open is, is in a sense, the way you want to do it. Because to, to just crudely accept material reality uh, gives you nothing. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, that would be like a will not to dream. And who doesn't want to dream? Whether sleeping or awake, you want that element of dreaming. There's nothing. There's no triumph in life to get to the age of 88 and say, I never dreamed in my life. Oh. I never took imaginative risks. I just took things literally as they came at me and nothing else. You could do that, but my question is, why would you want to do that? It'd be it's like walking your whole life and never dancing, or you know, avoiding music because music's complicated and live in silence. Um, you can do that, but it's kind of a loss. Yeah, it's life, life without color. So, animals, what do we learn from watching animals? Um, well, it depends what you bring to it. Um, I started using animals uh, in Life of Pi, um, not at all for sentimental reasons. As it happens, I happened to have a number of animals when I was a kid living in Costa Rica. I had those usual little pets that kids have, North American kids.
but it was through going being in India that I suddenly woke up to these fellow creatures on our planet. And in India, you because it's a troubled country, you not only see a lot of animals that you don't see in temperate countries. Um, so, you know, you see monkeys, you see rats, you see lizards, uh, you'll see snakes. Um, you'll see because it's sacred in Hinduism, you'll see cows wandering, you know, conurbations of 20 million people. You see animals, you'll see elephants. You see a lot more animals than you do in temperate countries. And beyond that, in Hinduism happens to be a religion that's populated with animals. Uh, every god has an animal transporter. Uh, so Shiva has a Nandi, who's a bull. Uh, Ganesh has a little rat. Hanuman is a demigod, is a monkey. Uh, Ganesh has the head of an elephant. Um, there's a lot of animals present in Hinduism. So I was suddenly struck by these creatures. And I, I asked myself, you know, what does it mean? What can we do with these? So initially, I just used animals in life of Pikes was a good literary device. People are less cynical about animals than they are about people. We tend to be very cynical about our own species. We tend to look at animals, especially wild animals of uh, wonder. And that's very useful for a writer. Um, so there's many things we can learn from animals. There's one extreme is we learn absolutely nothing. You have a little pet cat, well, you completely anthropomorphize it. You speak to it in English or in French and German or whatever language. Well, your cat guaranteed doesn't speak that language. But we tend to anthropomorphize our pets, domesticated animals. We tend to anthropomorphize a lot. And it's just a companion. It's a substitute human being who just happens to be easier to deal with than a real human being. Real human beings are complicated and annoying because they have personalities. Dogs and cats have much simpler personalities. So the, from those animals, we learn very little, just that we're social beings that uh, are subject to loneliness. And a pet dog is a very good um, antidote to loneliness. On a grander level, I think animals um, are equalizers. We should realize that um, we need animals. If there are no animals on this planet, we would uh, die. We'd lose a major source of protein, and every natural mechanism would stop, would stop working properly. So in a sense, we live on a balance, on a fulcrum. And, you know, I'm not going to say that one human... Only one, one sheep is worth one human life, but cumulatively, all the sheep on this earth are at one end of a stick on a fulcrum, and we're at the other end. And if there are no sheep, I think I think I say that, in fact, at one point in the high mountains of Portugal, get rid of all the sheep, uh, get rid of the shepherds, the sheep will starve because no one will care for them. You know, we, need, we both need each other. So it, it, I guess this is a, a trite point that we're all connected, but I just saw that in a very real way because we so disregard animals we trivialize them as pets we brutalize them uh, in mechanical agriculture and slaughterhouses we're out of balance in our relationship with animals so that's not more of a political environmental perspective but in my in my what i found interesting in using animals is it gave me a sense of wonder that's why in life of pi there's a link between zoology and religion with us with fellow human beings because of language, because of reason, we tend to flatten the marvel in each one of us. We tend to be very cynical, as I said. We're, maybe we're, we have a sense of wonder with the ones we love, the very few people right around us, close, close, close by that we love. But beyond that, we are so many of us, and we're so noisy, and we're so dangerous, and we're so this and that, that we tend to flatten us by simplifying them. We, we get that sense of wonder, I think, when we connect to animals. And you see that occasionally in zoos. We see that in zoos with children. But even us, people who go to safaris to Africa are blown away. When you see a, a, a wild animal in its environment, 
it can be a profoundly moving experience. I had that. I went once to the Galapagos Islands, and I years ago, and uh, it was it was it was extraordinary. Uh, so I started using animals because they still are a source of wonder, and they sh- and that is is a quality that they share with gods. People are religious and see their gods. They're filled with wonder. If you see an animal in the wild, you can be filled with wonder. So I, I, I think there's a connection that there's a mystery in animal. There can be no mystery in some of us. We look at each other and we see no mystery. If you look in the eyes of, let's say, of a gorilla, or even if you look in the eyes of your pet dog, you don't know what it's thinking. You can kind of guess with your pet dog that it wants approval. It's, it's a herd animal. It wants you're the alpha male, the alpha female. It wants your approval, and then it'll just sit down and basically do nothing. Um, but other animals, you just wonder, how do they operate? What are they here for? I look at animals, and, and I ask myself philosophical questions. Is what is the meaning of life? Mm. You know, what is the meaning of life of a parrot? Why is a parrot out there? Um, and so, it, it, to me, they, they make you ask these questions, so they're a useful vehicle in fiction to ask these questions. And um, so it is a disguise. I use it as a tool to inquire. But the fact that animals really truly exist also means they're profoundly non-fictional. I just find them very, very wealthy. Now, in this latest um, uh, novel, the Trojan, the Trojan War one, I won't be using animals in quite the way I've used in Life of Pi and in Beatrice and Virgil and in uh, even the High Mountains of Portugal. Um, but I'll still mention them because I said I, I find them now to not mention animals would be like have a novel where there's absolutely no women. Uh, mm. It'd be kind of odd, like it's not the full picture anymore. If you're mm. doing a, a novel as a human product, you know, so it, it, to me, animal in a sense are part of the, of the human, of that human picture. Hello, my name is Daniel Sarut. I am currently a senior at UC Irvine in Irvine, California, and I am majoring in biological sciences. Martel's writing draws a lot from his background in philosophy and interests in world religions. It's pretty beautiful how he talks about the primary religious texts as fictional works that have shaped our perception of the world. In Life of Pi and elsewhere, he cannot imagine a world without belief, without faith, without these essential fictions that give life meaning. Martel provides us with the option of an alternate story without faith and imagination. This is important to me because regardless of whether or not you believe in these religions, they have so many valuable lessons that could be applied to your life here on Earth. The way Martel talks about these stories still provide these lessons, but makes them so much more digestible to all readers. The works of fiction that I like to read often use metaphors that run through the whole story that offer truth, though sometimes exaggerated. When I paint... I like to use colors and shapes to evoke feeling or insights. I want to make the person look deeper and think about what is being portrayed. I feel like Martel wants to make us pause throughout his writing and take a moment to think. This podcast was inspiring to me because that is exactly what I try to do when I paint. I like to make the viewer pause and suddenly Now they're thinking about religions, animals, and just wondering, just like I was. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Jan Martel. Not many writers um, 
deal with animals in their fiction or really honor them I think as they should because they're part of our, our whole experience and what I love anyway about um, reading about animals or if I can try to imagine the life of animals is it also reminds me about how much of our communication is also nonverbal and um, because we forget because we, it goes back to that question of rationality you know and uh, so it makes me look then again at humans again I guess that's part of your project um, uh, so I was wondering, um, what, what teachers may, were important to you as you were growing up? Oh, a lot of them. I, I was very lucky. I, um, I had a lot of good teachers growing up. I had some bad teachers, but I, I had some teachers um, who were passionate about what they taught, whether it was geography or history or mathematics they managed to instill in me or to make me see how interesting and joyful what they were talking about was interesting. So I remember geography who taught me about artesian wells. I remember being taught, you know, algorithms um, uh, by a math teacher. I just remember uh, biology. I, I mean, I can list so many teachers who brought the world and made me see how fascinating it was. I, so I loved school. I mean, I didn't like, you know, bullies. I didn't like jerks in school. I did have some bad teachers. But when the teachers were good, I loved it. I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Um, it's all interesting out there. You know, chemistry, biology, physics, history, geography, uh, literature. I thought they were all interesting. Um, now, eventually, you find the ones that you find more interesting that you have more to say with. So I lost interest in chemistry you know, in probably grade 10. I didn't, wasn't quite as interested in chemistry as was, say, let's say, in physics and biology and math, and then eventually I was more you know, disposed to look at the arts. Um, but I found them all, so all those teachers helped me, and then I had teachers outside of that. My parents were very good, are very good parents. Um, and then people you meet along the way. And uh, some of my other great teachers were books. Uh, that's how I became a writer, was through the, the teachers, you know, called, teachers called Tolstoy, uh, you know, uh, Willa Cather, Virginia Woolf, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, writers, uh, you know, J.M. Curtsy, uh, writers, books became my teacher. Now, I never thought I could, you know, the, you, going back to some of your early questions of how I became a writer, I didn't think of it as a career because the link between me, a 20-year-old, some nobody, and books on a shelf, that the, the link seemed unimaginable. Um, it became imaginable as I keep, kept on writing, scribbling away. Um, books were my teachers. I mean, one of the great reading, the things that I read in my life was Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, was the Decameron uh, by Boccaccio, um, you know, the Odyssey, uh, the Iliad. These books were also my teachers. Uh, but I did have, yeah, I have the luck of having good teachers, and uh, that's why another thing attracted me to India is the system of the guru in, in Hinduism. In Hinduism, the guru is a key feature. Now, it's been debauched and corrupted yeah these corrupt gurus and but the notion is that a teacher is essential and therefore you should be with your teacher and you should serve your teacher and in exchange for the teacher teaching you you will sweep his room you will make his meals and this idea that you don't know and someone knows better and therefore you should be with someone who knows better and that person will teach you and therefore you'll become better and perhaps one day you will become a guru I find that idea of putting the teacher at the center of a society um very important. And you don't have that, for example, in uh, certainly in the U.S., yeah. um, where teachers 
elementary and high school are very poorly paid and it's held to be sort of not a great profession, which to me is a, is, is, is a howling outrage because it, it, we are formed by our parents, of course, but our parents can only do so much. And after that, we're formed by our teachers. And if we don't value our teachers, that's essentially meaning we're not valuing our children's education. So to me, as a teacher, should be the it's funny how in our societies we value lawyers and doctors now if you're lucky if you're moderately lucky in a, in a lifetime you should never have to deal with lawyers maybe if you buy a house you have to deal with lawyers but you should basically never have to meet a lawyer professionally and if you're lucky you should only have to see a doctor maybe once a year for a general checkup and that's it you should so basically the two ways you basically should be avoid whereas it should be ones that should be revered looked up to should be teachers who we be seeing all the time uh, through our education, our formal education, but even in life, we need gurus. Um, they should be a society where teachers are this notion of the guru. I find t- teachers are essential, and I was the beneficiary of having uh, really great teachers. And I think, and I don't know what your feelings, I, I believe that the educational system, the general, we're just talking about like public education for the moment, um, uh, early education in, in Canada is... Um, it's superior to in America. I don't know. I haven't had that experience, but I, I believe so. And that's one thing that I would like to do, celebrate great teachers. I really think it's like one of the invisible arts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, artists themselves become, I mean, especially visual artists, the writers, but musicians and visual artists absolutely need teachers. I mean, no kid picks up the violin and knows how to play it. You know, kids just paint, but you need to know the history of art, you know, there's a lot of technique involved, unless you're a naive artist or, you know, Basquiat. You know, you, you do need some sort of training um, uh, uh, as, as visual artists and as musicians. And writing's only less so because education that learn how to write in the West. You know, so everyone in a sense knows how to how to write, whereas not everyone knows how to play the trumpet or the violin or knows uh, how to do composition, how to do a perspective. So yeah, teachers are, are essential. Uh, artists uh, especially and I do you mentioned there um, Dante obviously you reference him Beatrice and Virgil and I'm thinking of some of the other writers you reference um, Agatha Christie and I think that your your writing shares something in, in common with them and that it can be read on uh, on multiple levels like it can be enjoyed like an adventure story I'm thinking like Ag- Agatha Christie or something you know puzzle but then it nourishes this um, deeper spiritual aspect um, and I think it's a wonderful. I don't know how. I don't know how you manage that. You know, so a, a book that can be really appreciated. It seems like what the definition of a classic, a book that can be uh, really appreciated by a, a a very young person at a certain level, and then someone more so- sophisticated and um, very well read. Uh, yeah, I I was surprised with Life of Pi because I wrote it as an adult novel, and I was surprised mm-hmm. that the number of teenagers read it. I guess because it features a 16-year-old, and I guess because it features animals. There's, uh, it's funny, we hold animals to be a somewhat childish attraction, which, as you said earlier, that very few adult writers write about animals. You're right, the animals are confined to the world of children's literature, which is sort of puzzling because there's nothing childish about a lion. Really, there isn't. You see a lion in the flesh, there's nothing childish about it. It's a terrifying thing. And even tiny little creatures, like little tiny insects, isn't uh, but curiously, we, we because they set children's imaginations on fire, we figure that's where it ends, and therefore it belongs to children. Um, and so the, that novel attracted 
and I expected even though my intent was purely adult I mean it's a novel about ways of seeing the world and you know all, all alternate readings of, 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 of the world um, and I, I, the other ones I read I write very slowly too I, I invest my years of my life in each book so it has to have many layers because you can't you can't stay at a single note um, the whole time and and the joy of creation is a joy at many levels you know to go back to the trivial example you know, the joy of a cake is is is, is multiple. It's obviously its taste, but there's also its texture, how moist it is, the kind of the icing, how it's presented. You know, there's a, and same thing with the story. There, there, it can't just be a single. If it's a single note, that tends to be genre, right? which is totally valid. Uh, um, but that means it's a known product. Genre fiction is a known product. You know what you're going to get out of a romance or a murder mystery, and that's what you want. You you want that hit. Um, with a literary story, you don't know what you're getting, and therefore you get you can get many many things. And I think that's part of the wealth and the difficulty of handle not knowing what they're getting. Um, and so, yeah, I invest a lot into it because it has to fill in my hours for for many days. And that's why I don't write very much. It takes a while to find something that will nourish me at many levels and hopefully uh, nourish others. Could you describe your research process? I believe you you collect uh, things in and envelopes and they're almost like letters to yourself or uh, what I do is I've had that process for quite a while now um, to preserve that spontaneity I talked about I uh, just well yeah, let's say let's take the latest example so uh, I read the the, uh, the Iliad and I suddenly saw that I could do something with that so I read it carefully and as I read I take notes and the notes can be anything from quotes to an idea that I get so I write out a little scene could be sometimes just a sentence um, in other words a little insight it can be an entire scene so it could be a page or two I just collect those and then once I decided to do something based on the Trojan War well after reading the Iliad I read about the Iliad so I read about the epic cycle of which the Iliad is just one volume the others have been lost except for the Odyssey they're just fragments then I read about Mycenaean Greece, so I read about different aspects of that time. Um, and as I'm doing that research, I'm writing notes. So right now for this Iliad novel, I have about 370 pages of notes. And by the time I finish, I'll probably have about 450. And I don't go over them. So as I advance, I do not go back to what I've written earlier, which means sometimes I'm repeating certain ideas and from a different angle. Sometimes it's new stuff. Sometimes I write scenes that I know will not fit at all because my notion of the novel has changed. But anyway, at the end of it, I'll have 450 pages of notes. So what I'll do, what I've done with all my books, is I then print those up. I take a pair of scissors and I cut them up. Depending on, you know, I cut them up in the little discrete sections. So sometimes it'll be a page and a half, so I'll cut and I'll tape them so you have a page and a half taped together. Or I'll have a single line. It'll be one little snippet. And then I get these large envelopes and I put these little snippets based on where they belong. Um, so either they'll be, sometimes, for example, with Life of Pi, I had subject envelopes. So I'd gather information on turtles of the Pacific, what kind of turtles are in the Pacific. Well, any information I gathered on that would go in that single envelope. And anything, whenever I had to do something about a turtle, I'd open that envelope and look what I had gathered. But more often, they're in chronological order, where they belong in the novel. Um, and uh, so I'll gather up analog, it's 
physical pieces of paper, and um, I can't remember everything in a novel. In fact, I don't know how other people write novels. I'm, I'm always puzzled that people find my method of writing a novel puzzling, because I sort of wonder, how do you write a novel? Like, I, I just puzzle as how other people... Um, I suppose they do it on computers and they have files, but I find that unsatisfying because it's so virtual. I like the, the physicality of my bits of paper, and the fact that I don't go over it means I'll read it again, and it'll all seem new, and it'll either excite me or it'll embarrass me, and either way it'll, it'll set my course. And it's interesting you, that you bring up um, analog and, and digital, because I, I think now a lot about the future and how technology is changing the way we interact with our imaginations and uh, and the world. And uh, and what are your feelings on that? How I mean, it's kind of frightening. Well, it's it's mixed. I mean, uh, I love my computer. I mean, the word processing is phenomenal. I mean, I my first. Um, uh, I wrote a first novel that was never published, and I wrote it longhand because I figured writing more slowly would make me write better. I figured I'd be sort of like Jane, uh, like Jane Austen, and you know, write entire perfect paragraphs with the odd little change. Well, when I finally came to type up my handwritten novel, and then I, what I used to do is I used to write by hand, and then when I had to change something, I would cut a piece of paper the right size of what I had to change and I'd write over it and put, so it's all these things were pasted on top of each other it was quite lovely to look at but a terribly stupid way of writing when I finally typed it up on a computer I realized my god word processing where you can cut and paste where you can check spelling where you can you know go on the internet and do research it's so much more efficient so I, I love word processing and it's useful to access online dictionaries it's quick um Doing research on the internet is a quick, a good way of, of finding out things quickly. Um, you know, now I can look at maps of Mycenae, for example, an ancient Greek city. Mm-hmm. I can look at images of it on the internet. Um, I'm going to go to Greece this summer to do some research. Well, I can do a lot of preliminary research beforehand on my computer, so that I don't have to do it on the ground when I'm there. So, deciding, for example, whether I go to the National Archaeology Museum in Athens. Uh, do I have time to do that? Well, looking online, I don't think I need to. So, there. Um, so, a very powerful tool. At the same time, um, as much as technology is supposed to make us efficient, uh, I find it doesn't. It just means we're stressed and busy doing something else. You know, it was supposed to be that washing machines would liberate women from the drudgery uh, of, of, of chores at home. Well, no. Washing machines were invented, and now women got busy and stressed doing something else. You know, and I think that's the same for all technologies. You know, we got cars that eliminated the slowness and the burdensomeness of traveling on horses. Well, now we're just stressed by something else that cars facilitate us with. So I, I find it's a dual edge. There's a dual edge to technology. Yes, it can make things easier. It's endless convenience, but a convenience for what? I think a technology. And I see that especially with stupid smartphones. People are obsessed with their smartphones. Mm-hmm. Teenagers are obsessed with smartphones. And I always wonder, yes, but the technology is supposed to bring us closer. Like the idea of a phone is you can talk to someone. There's the warmth of a human voice. Mm-hmm. And that's still amazing. Whereas if they're all that's texting, they're always Facebooking, that doesn't bring you closer. So there's more alienating. You see these teenagers in these sort of social media bubbles. But they're not genuinely interacting with people with their mannerisms and their tics and their their full personalities, uh, their technology simplifies it. You present what you want to present on Facebook. So there's also an element where it's alienating. Um, but, you know, can't, yeah, we certainly don't want to go back to the 
19th century or 18th century, uh, you know, vaccination is incredibly, it's a really clever trick that has saved many, many lives. Um, as I said, I love my computer. Uh, I like my light bulbs. They illuminate my dark rooms at night so I can read. Uh, you know, we want to make them fuel, you know, fuel, you know, they don't want, want them to destroy the environment. So you don't want incandescent light bulbs, but, you know, that's how I appreciate my technology, but, you know, it's a question of using it wisely. And that may be where we've been hypnotized by a cobra called, you know, technology and computers, and we've sort of lost track that ultimately they're just tools, and the tools only make sense if you know how to use it. And I think some people have forgotten. These people are always wanting the latest smartphone. At one point I wonder, well, what are you using your smartphone for? Is it connecting you to people? Is it connecting you to a greater or an other reality? Because if it's not, it's just putting you in a bubble, and I'm not sure that's good. We're a profoundly social species. We're a gregarious species. You should be connecting with other people. Um, so I have a mixed, you know, mixed, mixed feelings about it, but um, it's a question of navigating it, learning how to navigate technology. Yeah, to control it, because I think some people are allowing it to control them. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, for example, I don't do Facebook or Twitter or uh, Instagram. I happen to have Facebook and Twitter accounts because people were pretending to be me. Oh. But I literally never go onto Facebook. Uh, mm. And I, I, I've stopped receiving messages on it. Uh, I forget the wall or whatever. So it's a, people will see that it's a very path. And they, so they'll realize it's not the way to get to me. Mm. And my partner was much more, she's also a writer. Okay. She's much more connected to that. Um, she uses it as a tool. Uh, I choose not to. Um, and, you know, some people might say, well, it's a loss. You could connect much more with readers through Facebook than through tours, which are hardly happen anymore. And with tours, when you tour, when, let's say if I tour the U.S., I go to a handful of cities, I'll see maybe hundreds of readers. Well, on Facebook, you can reach literally millions of people right away. Um, but I just find it tiresome. I just find it, I'm not interested in doing that. It's just my, my, my creative choices. You know, it's my use of technology. I will use Internet. I will use email. I use my computer for processing, but I choose not to use Facebook and, and uh, Twitter. No, I think it's smart. I, I resisted up until quite recently. I was actually forced onto it by the Sorbonne. <laughs> they said, we can't share this unless you're on it. So I had well, to that's fine. do that's that. Well, question of using <laughs> Facebook. You know, I, I, for example, email. I nearly, 90% of my emails are professional. Mm. I don't choose to use email. I mean, the odd friend will write to me. Mm. Um, but I just, essentially emails, like, you know, I think, I can't remember how you reached me, I think it was by email? Yes. Yeah, right. You know, uh, it'll basically be my agent, it, it'll be, you know, school, school things with my children. Mm -hmm. Essentially, it's a, it's a strictly professional tool. Tool. So, same thing with you with Facebook. If you have to use it, then you use, use to learn it well. You don't spend your entire life constructing a Facebook version of you. You basically use it for professional reasons, and that's fine. Then, then in that case, it's a very, very useful tool. I mean, some people do very well with Facebook. I mean, it's interesting now, presidents of the United States, you know, are, are on Facebook, are on Twitter. Now, Trump is not exactly brilliant on Twitter, he's, he's but it, 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 you know, it is a way that millions and millions of people can instantly hear from the U.S. president. Um, it used to be that you'd only hear from the U.S. president on the news, on, on, on television, and, you know. So, you know, there are, as I said, even things like Twitter and, and Facebook, I think the approach has to be nuanced. Let me ask you a few more questions because now you've brought up politics and then you had the your long-running uh, um, uh, guerrilla book club with Stephen Harper. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and what inspired that? Mm. Well, I, I, I was made to realize that he was not at all a reader. 
uh, one, during one election, the leaders were asked what their favorite books were, and Prime Minister Harper, the Prime Minister at the time, who's your standard right-wing, narrow-minded, simplifying conservative, his reply was the Guinness Book of World Records, not which I can see if you were a 14-year-old boy as a, as a good reply, but not when you're a 50-year-old Prime Minister of a country. I expect of my lead, you know, I don't expect everyone to read. Some people don't like reading. Some people can't read. Mm. Some people just, they just can't hold on to those sentences. They just, just can't, you know. And that's fine. There's no, there's no, not everyone needs to be a reader. Um, there's different ways of, you know, there are entire oral cultures where there is no reading at all. And that's fine. Um, so I don't expect people I meet on the street to be readers, but I do expect my elites to have read. And whether it's you know political elites or scientific elites or uh, uh, um, you know business elites, because they have power. Once you have power over people, I expect you to have a wide-ranging imagination, because otherwise there's a danger of misusing your your imagination. And so I expect my prime ministers to have read. Now, when they're in the thick of being prime minister, okay, they're not going to be taking on 800-page experimental novels which demand a real commitment. But I would expect them to have a bedside book, a novel of which they'll read, even if they only read five pages a night, something to nurse their imagination. Because um, otherwise, I don't know how they understand life. There's only so much you can get from gurus that you actually have. There's only so much you can get from briefings. You know, unless you've traveled widely and read widely, I don't know how one can know life. Someone who's never read, who has stopped reading since graduating from university, that means a little stream has stopped nourishing the lake of their mind. Uh, uh, you can only learn so much from just looking out through your eyes at what's in front of you. Because unless I said, unless you've traveled widely, or unless you have amazing gurus, unless you have amazing aides around you, um, yeah. uh, like you know Donald Trump, who's a complete fucking idiot, yeah. uh, has some people in his in, in his in around him who put the brakes on him, who say you can't just tear up NAFTA. You can't impose tariffs on China, and they plead and plead and plead, and sometimes they succeed. So he has people around him who are trying to moderate him. Um, but I expect, yeah, so I discovered that Stephen Harper seemed not to be a reader at all. Mm-hmm. He's one of these hard-headed, it's more typical with males, with white, empowered males who think they know everything. And I think at one age, in the early 20s, I'd say around 24, when they realize that fiction isn't real, they therefore think then therefore its truth must be relative. If it's not real, how true can it be? Therefore, I'll only read biographies now and histories. It's a tragic misunderstanding of the imagination. I think it's sort of a childish thing. It's like believing in Santa Claus. In fact, it's far more powerful than that. So they stop reading, and therefore, I think they start understanding life and the other, other with a capital O, much less, which you get through reading novels. Um, so one of the examples of a book that I sent Stephen Harper was a novel by Toni Morrison called The Bluest Eye, which is a wonderful invocation of a young African-American girl in the 1950s in Ohio living in a totally dysfunctional family. You read that novel for the duration of it, it's quite a dense novel. You are that little 12-year-old black girl. You are seeing the eye. So therefore, you have been black, you've been a girl, you've been a 12-year-old girl for the duration of reading that book. Well, some of that wisdom some of that experience affects you. Uh, well, if you don't read anything, you never are a 12-year-old black girl. You never are a, f- a 45-year-old gay male in, in France. You're, you, you know, you read, 
and therefore you shouldn't have power. So that's why I don't care if ordinary people don't read because they don't have power over me. Once someone has power over me, their imagination is accountable to me. I want to know what their dreams are because their dreams can affect me. They can become my nightmare. And Donald Trump's a perfect example. The guy cannot read. You had a man who ghost wrote his um, The Art of the Deal, yeah. which is a book that he allegedly wrote while well, it was ghostwritten by this guy. And he said the guy has the attention span of a gnat. He cannot focus. He cannot read. Well, therefore, you're not surprised that he has such stupid ideas about the world. Um, so uh, um, I started that campaign because Stephen Roy, who was, was smarter than um, Donald Trump? Uh, Donald Trump is in a class of his own. Uh, but nonetheless, it was this, sort of this standard, narrow conservatives who have offer simple solutions to complicated problems, simplify, 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 which is not the way the world works, and uh, keep on making the problems worse. So my, my, my response was to send them uh, a book every two weeks. I did it for four years. Always shorter books, usually under 200 pages, with rare exceptions. Uh, Agatha Christie was longer. Uh, Pearl Buck was a longer one. But it was a very narratively driven book. But they're easy to fall into. But each one was it was very wide-ranging. I don't know if you looked at the book. But it was poetry, novels, short stories, a little bit of the odd religious thing, Bhagavad Gita. Uh, um, just say this is what the written word could do. How can you read these and not be improved by them? Because you've been made a different person for a few hours. Um, to sort of say, you know, if you uh, if you don't read and you have your level of power, you're not exercising that power carefully. You're not exercising it well. And I would think that also with politicians, I would they need literature even more, even if maybe they don't have so much time. But because of the political discourse is a, is a kind of marketing, yeah? And I Absolutely, would find you're right. Yeah. Art is a refuge, you're right. I find when I go to, you know, being a writer, I sometimes tire of being in the written word. Mm -hmm. So I love going to art galleries. I mm -hmm. see big, beautiful paintings, and it's like a breath of fresh air. It's, it's, I'm on the top of a mountain now. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, you'd think politicians would need that as an escapism. Same thing with exercise. You exercise vigorously. While you're exercising, you cannot think. You're just focused on getting the task done. So you, 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 in a sense, you step away from yourself. It's a vacation away from yourself, a respite from your, your, your whatever's troubling you. And when you finish exercising, you come back to it. Same thing with art. It, it'll, it, in a sense, the art is escape. It's an escape that's intended so that you can return to yourself and be a saner person. And now we've talked about many mediums, but we didn't actually speak about the film adaptation of The Life of Pi. It was, um, it was a spectacle. It was a, it was a good movie. I didn't think it quite had the content of the book, but that's always the case with adaptations yeah. of novels. So the visuals were quite stunning. Um, it brought the story in some form, a more anecdotal form, to people who, who haven't, cannot read the book. And it was fun. It was, I was minimally involved. I read the screenplay in early versions of it. I met the director in New York early on. And I saw the last two days of the shoot in Montreal. So I didn't go to Taiwan or to India where the film was mostly shot. So it was, it was sort of an interesting, loud sort of sideshow. Um, it wasn't, it still seems like a sideshow, like something peripheral. I, I'm a writer. I love the written words. I love books. Uh, so I appreciate it. I appreciate the attention brought to the book. Uh, you know, it, it was sort of a sideshow. It wasn't, um, um, it was what it was. Yeah. Well, uh, pe people people love that film, and I, f I feel if it introduces people to your writing, then that's a good thing, and it makes them yeah, no, it, it. That, no, yeah. that yes, it did bring some book to, to read the, the 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 book. I wish the screenplay had been a bit stronger. Uh, yes. we're working on an adaptation uh, for the stage in oh. London. Oh, 
Right. There'll be a West a, a theater adaptation in London, and the British do their theater so brilliantly. Mm. You know, uh, so I have high ambitions there, and there I've involved myself more. I haven't done the adaptation; someone else has done it, but I've definitely involved myself more, so that it's more faithful. I feel to what I'm trying to say in the book, and so and theater, because theater has fewer means. Mm it calls more on your imagination and therefore sometimes it has a greater impact. In fact, the, a very inexpensive adaptation was done of Life of Pi in Bradford mm-hmm. in Northern England and it was brilliant. It was so good because yeah. it used the, the simple tools of theater that can be extraordinarily effective. So I have high hopes for this play. I'll see. That's, that's wonderful because I know you've also included, um, well you included a play in Beatrice and Virgil and it, mm. it's, it, it's uh, Interesting. Oh, I want to ask you some of the questions, but I've been keeping you so long about point of view and why you decided to do that. But I, I, I know we've been on the phone a long time. Well, that's fine. Point of view, what, in Beatrice and Virgil? Um, yeah, or just how you decide the way into novels. Yeah, and that has a... Well, that's a tough one. Point. I mean, uh, I remember... Which novel was it that I... I blanked out. Uh, I initially started, when I first started writing, I chose a first-person point of view because that's the simplest one. It's the most obvious one if you're unsure of what you're doing and speak from your own voice or from a fictional eye voice. So self is told from a first-person. It's a fictional self. I mean, very obviously, I haven't, I've never been a woman. But all the experiences that I recount may seem to be the experiences of the child of a diplomat, of diplomats, but they're inventions, but closely tacked on to, to my voice. And then slowly, I, you know, you can move out of that to third person. But those are questions you have to answer early on, is, is what voice you want to take, what perspective you want to take. Uh, in Beatrice and Virgil, I, I took the guise of some writers. In a sense, that it's true, I still get readers about uh, from Life of Pi and other books. I still, to this day, um, but I decided it quite deliberately to choose that as a fictional guise. I figured people would find it believable and would pull them in. And that's what you want to do in a story. You want to pull your reader in. You want to bring them in and listen to your story. Um, so those are that was a fictional guise that I chose that seemed to be close to my point of view. In fact, it wasn't. It was largely fictional. I don't play musical instrument, for example. I'm not into amateur theatrics. I do like theater, but I'm not myself into amateur theatrics. Um, so, yeah, that's an early question I asked early on is what, perspective I will take. So, for example, my Trojan novel, there'll be two voices. It'll be a novel in fragments. In fragments. Miraculously, the Odyssey and the Iliad have come in their entirety. But the rest of the epic cycle is just fragments. Literally, sentences. And then people who've read it, who've bothered themselves to write about it. So you get people saying, I read a book, and it was about this, and that's all that survived of the book, is what someone else said about it. So it'll be a novel in fragments. And that'll be a, a, a call on your imagination to flesh out what those fragments are about. Mm. And then there'll be a lower voice. There'll be another. There'll be a line across the page and beneath it will be like those scholarly texts where there's something, and then there's a skull, someone commenting on it. It'll be a scholar commenting on these fragments. So I'll allow myself a fictional voice, the fragments, and a non-fictional voice, which of course will be fictional, of this scholar commenting on these fragments. So I'm going to have two, two voices. Um, uh, one will be sort of this dispassionate first person, the scholar, who will occasionally intrude with little personal comments about himself, but he'll basically be a scholar trying to comment on these fragments. And then the fragments will be very vivid, uh, Homer-esque-like uh, of this uh, uh, fragments of a different tradition on the, on, the, on the Trojan War. 
so these are decisions that I make early on, what perspective I'll take, what point of view I'll take, what voice, and it has to flow, it has to work. Um, and initially, I remember with this Trojan one, I was going to, I thought I'd be, because I want to fragment our perception of the past, of how stories come to define who we are. So I thought, why don't I use brackets, have brackets within brackets within brackets within brackets, because um, a bracket is very fragment. Mm bracket works very well, but if you have brackets within brackets, it starts to fragment your understanding of what you're reading. So in fact, since you live in France, I read, uh, do you know, I don't know if you know, if you've read Claude Simon? Yes, I have, yes. Well, Claude Simon is so unreadable. So I read uh, La Route des Flandres, uh, Flanders Road, um, and he uses brackets within brackets, and I realize it's it's absolutely maddening, uh, because at the beginning of of a bracket, you understand but you forget the second half, especially if you have brackets within brackets and brackets. Realized, um, which is why no one reads Claude Simon. He's, he's the e-archetypal Nobel Prize winner that no one, literally no one reads except a few academics. He's, you know, he's, he's, he's very, you have to make a serious commitment. Beyond that, which I think most readers want to make nowadays, um, and the device of the brackets with brackets it doesn't work. He has other difficulties too, narrative difficulties that he presents, which joyful and really rewarding if you're willing to make that work. But it's basically like speaking uh, wake. Mm. Readers are willing to make the effort, and you wonder at the end of it all if it was worth it. And I think Claude Simon's like that too. And Flanders is not even his most difficult one. I mean, when you get to Les Georgiques, and it's, I don't know how people can actually finish that one. But anyway, I realized the bracket thing wouldn't work for me. It was too annoying. It ended up just simply being annoying. So I've abandoned that. So I, in fact, some of my fragments that I wrote these almost one of them was an extended section in brackets about the Greek fleet reaching the shores of Troy. And I had various things I was commenting on that were within these brackets, and I realized I'm going to have to deconstruct that and put it in a simple, a much more linear narration. Because with the bracketed thing, uh, it simply didn't work. Uh, I realize now it would just madden, the, it madden my editor, yeah. and I realized I would lose the reader. And at one point, you want to challenge your reader. It's that balance. You mm-hmm. want to, yes, challenge them. You could do an art edition. I could do an art edition. I could leave it as a fragment that, you know, some yeah. academic could look in 50 years if they care about it. Yeah. Um, but it was too, uh, I'll have to yeah. unpackage it, as I said, because you want to challenge your reader, but you want your reader to stay with you. Yeah. There was a heyday, like early 20th century American fiction. You look at the writers like uh, John Dos Passos and William Faulkner. What they were doing was so experimental, it was exhilarating. But then, post-war, you got some fiction in the 60s and 70s, Claude Simon's a good example from France, mm-hmm. of stuff that went so far that I think it loses everyone except the hardiest, hardiest reader. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just decided, anyway, all this to say that these, these are creative decisions that I, as a writer, make quite early on, mm-hmm. uh, and then, then you go with it. And speaking of fragments, this is just like a side note, I think of uh, someone who used fragments, but in a more clear way, like Roland Barthes for example. I mean, I just think of a lover's discourse or something, but it's not exactly the fra- fragments in the sense that you mean, but I find there's I mean, a... Yeah. yeah, mine are literally fragments. I some, for example, there's a place in Egypt called Oxyrhynchus. Yes. Oxyrhynchus. Have you heard of Oxyrhynchus? I, I, I don't know much about it, no. Oxyrhynchus is a, a, a two uh, papyrologists, British papyrologists, discovered. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was a garbage dump. Quite literally, it was a garbage jump from um, uh, roughly 2,000 years ago, where the people of Oxyrhynchus at the time did a spring cleaning, I guess, and threw out 
stuff, like you do in a, in a spring cleaning. And they threw papyrus, bits of papyrus that were discovered by these two papyrologists. And it's, a, it's been an extraordinary treasure trove. Uh, some of these papyrus were used to stuff animals, for example. So, for example, you have pe poems of Sappho mm. that were found in a mummified crocodile at Oxyrhynchus. So someone had thrown oh. out this mummified crocodile, I guess they thought it was old and cracked, so they just threw it out. And the crocodile had been stuffed. You need to stuff an animal. It had been stuffed with papyrus paper, is, or papyrus is crumply and takes space. And so mm -hmm. and so they'd just thrown out stuff. And what they'd thrown out was some poems of Sappho. Um, for the apocryphal gospels of Jesus, the gospel according to Thomas, a uh, uh, fake, if you want, gospel, uh, fragments of it were found once again at Oxyrhynchus. Tons and tons of stuff has been found at Oxyrhynchus that was thrown out by the people at the time. The papyrus was not was just thrown out. Either it was, we don't care about this book anymore, or we've used it to stuff it, or whatever. We've just thrown it out. And it's a real treasure trove of fragments. So in my novel, I will say that some of these fragments come from there. Also, the Mycenaeans yeah. used what's called Linear B to write. Mm -hmm. And Linear B was strictly used for commercial purposes within the palaces at the time. It was never used for literary purposes. Well, I'll posit I have this scribe who listens to a bard very early on telling tales of Troy, and he's so moved by it, he'll try to write down some things using Linear B, which is a very limited form of writing. I'll, disc I'll claim that we've discovered these tablets. So I'm going to create these little fragments from the past. Because um, after all, there were many traditions told of the Trojan War, mainly oral. Many have been lost. Um, some exist in fragments. Uh, we know of all, you know, you know, Helen was stolen from Sparta by, by Paris and brought to Troy. Well, there's some tradition that says that they didn't go straight to Troy, that in fact initially went to Syria. They went somewhere else and were kept there for a while before coming back. There's fragments of the story that just went, I guess, were held to go nowhere and therefore were not preserved in the Iliad, uh, but were preserved in some of the other epics, and others were entirely lost. So I'm going to posit the said other. Uh, ideas about it, because after all, the the the, uh, the Trojan War is, is a mythical war. It's this fragment that's been painted upon by generations mm. of artists. It is fictional. It's profoundly yeah. fictional work that has formed the Greek people. Just as the Gospels are, fi are works of fiction, we have no historical accounts of Jesus. We only have artistic accounts, metaphorical accounts. The Gospels, the, the Gospels are so. Uh, Jesus is not a historical figure. There's nothing written directly about him. It's interesting to me that the West shaped by two works of fiction, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and the Gospels, which are prehistorical artistic works. Uh, the West is based, has two feet, they're both fictional feet. Mm -hmm. And after that, we started being ra rational and reasonable. So I want to base it on these fictional fragments that I'll create. Um, and uh, anyway, that's where I'm at. Oh, it's exciting. It's, sto it's stories about stories, and, and then I keep on hearing from other people that people don't read anymore, and yet you say our foundational myths, our foundational stories, it's all it's, it's other people's dreams. It's and it's not true. That, you know what? It may be true that it's not... people. Some people may no longer read, mm -hmm. but they still need stories. Instead oh, yeah. of getting stories from a novel, they'll get it from Netflix. Yeah. They'll get it from songs. We still need stories. And it's not true that people don't read. Mm -hmm. It's just that people don't read necessarily certain books. Uh, but mm -hmm. there's still plenty of books out there. People oh, I, read more now. Yeah. So, but but it's just, the, the stories come in different forms. Uh, yeah. There, but I, I, want, I want to celebrate literature, though, because I feel that's 
one of the other art forms as well you mentioned theater and things but I feel that's one that really nourishes our interior world I, I think Absolutely. better than the other things Thank you, Jan Martel, for inviting us into your imaginative world and your writings about the importance of storytelling, spirituality, and your complex reflections on animal and humankind. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Daniel Cerruti. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocesses.info. Thanks for listening.